Thank you so much. It's great to be speaking today as we start our new sermon series in the book of Daniel. The kingdom of Judah had been conquered and a number of people had been taken exile into the Babylonian empire. And among them were what you might describe as the brightest and the best. And those people were placed into specific positions as officials in the Babylonian empire, in the Babylonian kingdom, in order to try and inculturate them, in order to try and make them more like those in Babylon. And so this is what's happening. What King Nebuchadnezzar does at one point is he puts up an image of gold 90 feet high, a huge thing, and he puts it on this massive plane where it can be seen for far around. And then he invites all the officials in the kingdom to this plane. And he says, when the music starts, I want you to bow down and worship this image I've set up. And there are three of the exiles, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who when the music starts and thousands bow down, remain standing. And so someone says, look what they've done, and they're dragged before the king. And that's where we pick up the story. I want to talk today about how to thrive in times of testing, how to thrive in times of testing. And uh, there are all times when we feel particular pressure, we feel like we're under particular pressure, where we might face criticism at work, where a project we're working on has got quite difficult. Maybe at the moment you've got some difficult colleagues or a difficult uh, boss. Maybe you are a difficult boss. And, um, and maybe the time of testing is through your health or relationships with your friends have become quite complex. There's been misunderstandings. Things don't feel quite right. And when you place your trust in Jesus, it doesn't mean that you're never going to face another difficult day in your life. You have new resources, new potential to face the tests of life. But tests will come. There are some tests we face Um, in spite of the fact we have faith. And there are some tests we face because we have faith. Sometimes uh, you, you face challenges because you're doing something wrong. Sometimes you face real challenges because you're doing something right. So how can we make sure we're prepared for times of testing? So when tests come, we can face them calmly and confidently and not just survive in the middle of those tests, but actually thrive so that our faith can be strengthened and our character can be refined. That's exactly what this passage speaks to. And the first thing we see in this passage is that we need to increase our integrity, increase your integrity. Now, integrity is one of the most highly valued character traits. People often in surveys say it's the thing they most admire in people, the thing they most look for in leaders. But actually, integrity means an undivided life. A life without partitions. There's a consistency about people with integrity. They're the same with different people. With people with very high influence or people who appear to have no influence or very little influence at all. They're the same if they're in one place as they are in another place. Same at one time or one season as they are in another season. They're the same person having coffee on a Sunday at church as they are in a club in Shoreditch at 3am on a Friday night. Oh, it seems like there was a lot of people out. And um, 
what does that look like? How can we make sure that we have that kind of integrity? Because Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego were exiles in Babylon and so their integrity was directly targeted. They'd been placed into these official positions and the purpose of that was so that they might be shaped by the culture, the Babylonian culture and influenced by the people who around them who did not share their faith. The aim was to iron out the creases and subtly remove what made them distinct so they looked and sounded the same as everyone else. And then a real threat comes along. King Nebuchadnezzar puts up this huge gold statue in a large open field where everyone can see, gets all of the officials there and says, when the music starts, you've got to bow down. Now that's quite a social pressure to stay standing when thousands are bowing down. That's quite a pressure. But it's also backed by like the threat of official enforcement. And it's a cunning strategic move by Nebuchadnezzar. He knows that in Babylon there are people from all different kinds of backgrounds, all different kinds of faith. And so rather than targeting their private personal expression of faith, he targets what happens in public. You, know, you can have your private personal faith. But in public, I want you to worship this statue just like everyone else. I want you to look the same, act the same, and worship the same. You can have a personal faith, but leave it at home. Don't take it into the public square. He's rooting out, actually, anyone who thinks their personal faith should influence their public actions. And it's so subtle. Because you could think, well, what's the harm? Just go along in public. It's the heart that counts. Um, But actually, what would happen is you are marginalizing your faith into just a set of private beliefs rather than something which has the powerful potential to shape your life, shape the life of your colleagues and friends around you, and actually even shape the city. And the three see that, and they refuse to bow down. And I don't know about you, but we kind of face that kind of subtle pressure today. Sometimes it can feel like quite a test over coffee on a Monday morning when someone says to you, how was your weekend? Say, <coughs> went to church. Or to, to even to, to, to think, actually, I'd quite like to grow my faith, so I might read a Bible on the tube. I, I've done this. You know, back in the, you know, iPhones have only been around about 11 years. The app store's only been available for 10 years. I love all my Bible apps. But there was a day, some of you wouldn't know this, when we didn't have iPhones and we didn't have apps. So if you wanted to read your Bible on the tube, you had to, wait for it, take out a Bible on the tube. And it felt dangerous. It felt like an act of rebellion to kind of take it out. And people are like looking at you like, what is that? It's a subtle pressure, actually, to conform, to be like everyone else, to keep your faith private. You know, it's fine to believe, but don't let your private beliefs shape your public behavior. But it doesn't work because Christianity was never meant to be a private faith. It's designed to shape your whole life. And what actually I found is that over time, it's the other way around. Your public behavior starts to shape your private faith. And it threatens your integrity. So I, I loved my school. I grew up in quite a rough school where it was quite hard to study. And people um, did all sorts of crazy things like steal cars at lunchtime and then drive them over the school fields. And um, do all that, much like your school, I'm sure. And, um, it, but it was a bit like, a bit strange. And then when I was 16, if you wanted to do A-levels, you had to go to a sixth-form college in the centre of Luton. I might not have mentioned I'm from Luton. And... Um, and so you went off. And so eight of us from my school went off 
for the sixth form college. And it was amazing. There were 2,000 people, just remarkable. And uh, people actually studied in the lessons. That was different. And teachers could teach. And uh, it was also, because we were from the rough end of town, when we came to the sixth form college, everyone thought we must be super cool. Now, we weren't, but no one knew that. And so suddenly we had this whole new social capital. And so we got into this whole party scene. We'd be out um, quite a lot at bars and clubs. And we just, I absolutely loved it. And I became quite separated from the context in which I'd grown up. You know, I was separate from all my friends who were Christians. None of the people I hang out with anymore were Christian. And actually, I found it quite hard to get to church. Um, it's quite hard to go to church on a Sunday morning if you've been out in a club till 4 a.m. on a Saturday night. Anyone feeling that right now? Just, I feel your pain. And um, it's quite difficult. And what happened was, my, there started to become a bit of a divide between my private faith, my personal faith, and my public behavior. But it was having a much greater impact than I realized. And one of the teachers I loved at my sixth one college is called Mr. Smith. And he was like the ideal teacher. He was encouraging. He was inspirational. He was dynamic. And he taught politics. And I loved his lessons. Like I would be in the front row, right there, teacher's pet, just soaking it all in, this teaching about politics. But his one flaw, as far as I was concerned, was he really had an issue with Christianity. So every now and again, he'd go on some big rant about Christians and Jesus and all this kind of stuff. And it was always a little bit difficult. But then one day in particular, he started ranting about it. He was saying, this Christian faith, it's all nonsense. The Bible's nonsense. Jesus is nonsense. And then he stopped. He looked around the class and he said, I hope no one here believes any of this stuff, do they? I was like, So I had my personal private faith and he started looking around the class and eventually his eyes my, eye, my eyes and I looked at him and I suddenly realised I was completely and utterly exposed because I hadn't been keeping my integrity I'd been completely shaped by my, what I was doing in public thinking it would have no impact on my faith and then in the moment of testing I just kind of looked down at the floor and I shook my head Now, I knew Jesus. I knew Jesus had died for me. But in that moment, I denied that I even knew him. I kind of cracked under the pressure. And as I walked away from that classroom, I thought, what has happened? Like, how has this happened in a year? I can't even confess I know Jesus in a classroom of 30 people in a politics block of Luton Sixth Form College. What am I so afraid of? But what happened was I had started to lose my integrity. Two parts of my life were pulling me apart and I was stretched to breaking point. You see, it's really interesting. Sometimes people talk about integrity. They say, well, you know, integrity is being the same in private as you are in public. Sometimes it's being the same in public as you are in private. Sometimes integrity means doing the right thing when no one is watching. Sometimes integrity means doing the right thing when everyone is watching. But are you going to be ready when that moment comes? And what I found, what I discovered, is that you can compromise your integrity by a thousand small decisions. But you can also establish your integrity by a thousand small decisions. Increase your integrity, but also discover your courage. Now the thing about courage is it's revealed. 
You don't know what's there until the test comes. It's revealed in the test. You don't know how much courage you have until the testing comes. And courage isn't the absence of fear. It's the decision to act in spite of fear. Feeling the fear and doing it anyway. And actually, courage is energy released to fight for something you love. It's fascinating seeing these three before King Nebuchadnezzar. At that stage, the most powerful person on the face of the earth. We don't need to defend ourselves. The God we serve is able to deliver us and will deliver us from the majesty's hand. But if not, we will not serve or worship the image of gold you set up. It's a fascinating response. They're on trial for their lives. And that's how they respond. Calmly, confidently, directly. I've represented hundreds, probably over a thousand people Accused of crimes. It's great to see so many of you here today. And, um, but I have, and, and I've represented people on trial for their lives. People on trial for their lives don't tend to speak this way. With this calmness, this confidence. Actually, a couple of years ago, I had the privilege of having lunch with Nelson Mandela's uh, defense lawyer. And he told me that when uh, he represented Mandela in 1963 when he was prosecuted by the South African government at the height of the apartheid regime for offences which carried the death penalty. And at the start of his defence, he got up to make a speech. And lawyers get very nervous when their clients speak publicly. They try and persuade them not to do it or to soften it a bit, but he wasn't having any of it. He looked straight at the judge and he said, I have dedicated my life to the struggle of the African people. I have fought against white domination and against black domination. I have cherished the ideal of a democratic and free society in which all people live in harmony. It's an ideal for which I hope to live and see realized. But my Lord, if needs must, it is an ideal for which I am prepared to die. And as he said those words, something shifted in the courtroom for those who had eyes to see it. It had been, how is is Mandela going to respond to the charges laid against him by the South African government? Suddenly, for the people watching right around the world who saw this courage in the face of death, it was, how is the South African government going to respond to the challenge of Mandela when he speaks with such courage and galvanizes this movement. Courage is energy released to help you fight for something you love. So if you want to rediscover your courage today, focus on what you love. Find the things you love. And Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, they loved the Lord. They focused on him. They're not interested in backing down. They have courage in the face of death. And it's so interesting. I see this in all sorts of places. I go to um, connect groups sometimes to speak at connect groups. And I was invited to go and speak at a connect group on the top floor, the executive floor of a global investment bank in the city of London. So I kind of pressed the button, went up in the lift, and up, and up, and up, and up. And it was really high. I came out into some of the plushest offices I have ever seen in my life. I turned left. It was the actual main boardroom for the whole global investment bank. I walked in, and they're all in there waiting to start their connect group. I'm a pastor. I was nervous. I walked in. I said, is this okay? The woman who runs the connect group, who's very senior, was like, yeah, 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 yeah. What are they going to (laughs) do? Then she said, don't you think we should start with some worship? I was like, you are pushing it 
now, what if they hear? Then someone pulled out a guitar and started playing How Great Is Our God. We were looking out over the city of London on the top floor of a global investment bank. I think, I don't even work here. I'm scared. Everyone starts singing How Great Is Our God. I'm like, is that door locked? That's courage from someone who knows what they love and is prepared to face the test, who has integrity. I experienced this when I, when I started training to be a barrister because I'd failed so badly at my college. I started training to be a barrister. I was living in Luton. I was commuting into London. And they do this kind of thing, like to socially kind of bring you on board. You have to go to at least 12 dinners in a year. And you go to these dinners, you have a senior judge, a senior barrister, someone else, and you have this kind of big meal and you have to wear a gown and a three-piece suit. And they they serve three courses and they have a grace in Latin. And... um, And then after the three courses, they serve a cheese course, and then they serve port. And I got home after the first one, and I was explaining it all to my brother. And I was trying to explain, you're basically Paul. It's like you're in the hall that Harry Potter has his meals. There's like candles, you're wearing a gown, you're in a three-piece suit. And then they serve you three courses, and then they bring the cheese, and then they serve you a little glass of port. He looked at me and he said, port? And I said, yeah, Paul. He said, did you like it? And I said, yeah. He said, you've changed. So I, but it's true. I mean, I was being shaped by a context entirely different. Again, there was a separation between church and work. And so what I decided was I have to do something to shift things. So I gathered two other people who I knew had faith in my year. And I said, look, I know this sounds crazy. I just need to meet with you once a week, even if it's half an hour, 45 minutes. And I just need you to pray for me. And I'm going to pray for you that we might be faithful where God has placed us. Is that okay? And they were like, yes, that's okay. I'd love to do that. So we started doing that week on week on week on week. I didn't know there was going to be a test. I didn't know there was going to be a challenge, but I felt myself at risk of losing my integrity in that place. And then like nine months in, there I was with a senior judge, a senior barrister, and they kind of looked at me and said, Stephen, why do you want to be a barrister? Now the true answer was, Uh, because I felt God had called me to be a barrister. But it feels a bit much to say that, you know, with the candles, (laughs) the three courses, the poor, all that kind of stuff. It just felt like I didn't really want to break the mood. So I was kind of umming and ahhing about what I would say. And I thought, no, this is is a test. So I kind of looked at them, gulped, and said, well, I, I want to be a barrister because I think this is what God wants me to do. Kind of went. <laughs> One of them said, What did you say? I said, I think this is what God's calling me to do. The other one kind of looked a bit confused and said, Do you have his phone number? <laughs> and I was like, No, I mean, I just pray. I did. And as I walked away, I was so thankful because I said, Lord, thank you that you put people around me to help me build my integrity so that I might pass the test. Because integrity strengthens you. But if you partition your life, you'll be weak at the moment of test. But that, what I find so fascinating about these, guys, these three is that they, they're challenged. They're before the most powerful guy in the world. And they say, the Lord we serve is able to deliver us and will deliver us from your hand, O king. 
Remarkable confidence. But then they say this. And I think actually these are three of the most powerful words. Just three words in the Hebrew. Three of the most powerful words in the Old Testament. If you hear these words right today, they have the potential to transform your life. But if not, he can save us and we believe he will. But if not, we ain't going to bow to your statue. But if not, that's a different kind of game-changing faith. I know you can deliver me. I trust that you will. But my obedience is not dependent on your deliverance. There's a faith that grows when we ask God for things and he gives us what we've asked for. Good things in our lives like peace and joy and protection and blessing. When the relationship we prayed for works out. When the things we wanted to happen, happen. But there's also a faith that can only be forged when the things you prayed for, when the things you longed for didn't come to pass. When you said, God, I know you are able, I know you can do it, but if not. You know, when you wanted that promotion and it didn't happen, when you longed to be in a relationship with that person, but they chose someone else. When the person you're praying for to be healed did not get healed when you long for that friendship to be restored but it hasn't been you hope for you long for it you know God is able but if not I'm not going to stop trusting you I'm not going to stop worshipping you see if your faith is dependent on your circumstances and your experience it will be limited by them but if your faith transcends those things then the sky is the limit because Faith is never just about what God does in a particular context, at a particular time. Whether he comes through for me in exactly the way I want. But actually to say, God, I want this. I long for this. Please give me this thing. But if it's not the right time, if this isn't the right person, if it's not the right place, or if there's some other reason I don't understand why, I will never understand why this cannot happen. But if not, I'm, I'm going to keep praising you. I'm going to keep trusting you. That will enable you to be courageous in the testing. That's how you discover your courage. In the face of trial. Because you know who you love. And you trust him that his purposes cannot ultimately be frustrated. And his plans for your life are good, pleasing and perfect. So increase your integrity, discover your courage, and then get close to Jesus. It's fascinating. Fire in the Old Testament often signifies testing and trial. And it's so interesting that in the fire here, and Nebuchadnezzar says, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. There are people right now watching how you face trial and challenge, seeing how you act. And your witness to them is not only whether you're delivered from that test, delivered from that fire, but how you live in that place of testing. Some of the most powerful testimonies are when you're not delivered from what you wanted to be delivered for, but you keep praising and trusting him anyway. And then people look at you and they say there's something different about you. And God sometimes won't take you out of the test, but he will always come to you in the test. Sometimes God won't take you out of the fire, but he'll come into the fire with you. Most people say that this, someone who looks like the son of the gods, the angel of the Lord, this is Jesus, the pre-incarnate Jesus coming and supporting and delivering and encouraging them in the midst of their test. 
protecting them. Just kind of hanging out with them. Walking around. There's something really powerful about what Jesus can do in the midst of pressure. He has this ability to use pressure to forge something really beautiful in us. I've got a good friend who, all through her 20s, she really faced the most difficult uh, medical condition. It meant she had to be treated uh, almost nonstop, lots of painful treatments, spent huge amounts of time in hospital. She prayed, she longed for it to get better, and sometimes that happens, but for her it didn't happen. And I was speaking to her about it, and she said, Do you know, Steve, Jesus is so real to me now. So yeah, I spend a lot of time in hospital rooms, but I know he's there with me. I feel his presence. I feel him draw close to me. And I tell you, Jesus is with you in the test. I'm convinced Jesus is particularly drawn to those who have to face particular tests. If you're facing a test today, know that Jesus is drawn to you in that moment of test. He's with you in the hospital room. He's with you in the boardroom. He's with you in the exam hall. He's with you when it feels like your family are falling apart. He's with you when the relationship in which you put all your hopes seems to crumble and fall apart. He's with you when it feels like your friends have betrayed you. He's with you when you can't see a way through. I have found that Jesus is with you in the greatest test of life and I think the reason for that is because he knows just how it feels to be under that kind of pressure he knows what the test feels like because he spent a whole night under such pressure that he prayed with such fervor that he actually sweat drops of blood and do you know what he prayed father all things are possible for you you are able would you take this cup of suffering from me yet not what I will but what you will. Father, you are able. But if not, I'm going to be obedient. I'm going to serve. I'm going to worship. I'm going to keep on trusting you. I think Jesus loves to be near us when we say, Lord, I trust you in spite of what's happening, not just because of what's happening. I trust you even in the testing because he has prayed that prayer himself. And when you do that, when you place your trust in him, it shows people there's something different, something distinct about you in your workplaces, in your homes, your universities, right across this city. They can see it. Look at them. Look how they face tests. There's something different about them. Well, you might be thinking, well, that sounds great, but it's too late for me. It's too late for me. You know, I had my chance. I tried to get stuck into a company, a context. I tried to get stuck into uh, a community and I tried to bring something different. But actually, now you say it, maybe I did lose my integrity. I tried to change that environment. I tried to change that culture, but maybe I've just become a bit too much like everyone else. And so actually, you look at yourself now and you think, I just feel different, but not different to the people. I feel the same as people and different to how I was. I've slightly lost my integrity. I've lost this thing that made me distinct where I was. And if you feel that way, that's fine. There's a prayer you can pray. God, I need your help. You can pray it today and it's a prayer God loves to hear. And when you pray that prayer, his Holy Spirit comes in and transforms you and makes you distinct again, increases your integrity. But you know, that's not the end of it because it was never just about that. God gives you that distinct sense of who you are, empowered by his Holy Spirit. 
And then he sends you back into the places he's planted you. He says, go and live distinct and transform that company, that culture, that university, that community, that family in my name. He wants to use us even in our times of testing to bring transformation to the places he has planted us. Will you increase your integrity? Will you look for your character today and grow again your first love? And will you look for him in the midst of the test and say, Jesus, I know you can deliver me, but if not, I am for you and I trust you and I want whatever happens, your name, to be lifted high in my life, in this city and right across this nation. In Jesus' name, amen.